0: We are affected profoundly by the things around us, be that objects or be it the spaces we you know work and play in and live in, and the places where we, we sort of uh, inhabit both mentally and physically.
1: Welcome everybody to another episode of Partners in Time, the podcast where we talk to extraordinary personalities around the world of watchmaking, of form, a timekeeping and aesthetics to really get to the bottom of what makes them tick and what brings our two areas together. And today I'm joined by my dear friend and a very special guest, Hani Rashid, a Brooklyn based architect, lecturer, mentor to many people, including my sort of aesthetic style guide through the years, I'd say. Um, honey it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast how are you doing
0: chris fantastic and and it's a pleasure great pleasure for me to be here and thank you for that uh i didn't know that you were using your uh, aesthetic compass always according to my mentorship but that's nice to hear
1: (laughs) definitely i mean i don't think i've met many people in my lifetime who are as profoundly insightful when it comes to all things to do with form aesthetics and and that wider context and i must say you know it's 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 very easy to fall with you into very deep and meaningful conversations very quickly. So trying to keep it lighthearted <laughs> okay. as much as possible. But I mean, you, you, you are quite, uh, quite somebody in the world of, of architecture and design. You've designed many things beyond uh, spaces, towns, cities and buildings. Uh, but maybe for our listeners, give us a little bit of an insight into who you are, your story and, and what connects you to the world of timing and architecture, really.
0: Yeah, uh, well, I'm... I'm um I'm Egyptian born, uh, but born to a British mother and Egyptian father and, and had left Egypt when I was very young and grew up in, um, in Europe uh, and then eventually uh, Canada and had moved my practice here to the United States where I'm now living and working in New York City. Um, I've been involved in architecture uh, my entire life, but in fact, I'd sort of come to architecture from a, a passion for filmmaking and photography and uh, storytelling even. Um, and has somehow transitioned into this world of making spaces and uh and things um yeah and and we we do a wide variety of work from as you said uh city planning and large scale building projects uh down to very uh scale-wise smaller but maybe even profa- very profound things and objects uh, and and also venture a great deal into the art world producing um it, installation pieces and uh, and objects and, and other things. So really just kind of navigating the world of spatiality, um, aesthetics uh, and ideas uh, is just my passion and, and that's what I do uh, from 24 hours a day, seven days a week, <laughs> I guess. Definitely.
1: And that's sort of the difference, you know, with me sort of hobby architect uh, turned a watch CEO to a proper designer and architect. (laughs) That you, in nonchalantly, when we panic about a corner in a shop, you just, you know, city planning, you know, countries, islands, (laughs) (laughs) the like. Uh, You know, this is something, and maybe that's, I'm not sure if that's the right question to start with, but I often wonder... Because this whole thing of urban master planning and urban planning you know it, it is where sort of architect and architecture enters this different dimension of actually defining people 's lives at the end of the day in interaction with space because the cities and the urban landscapes we live in they, they really um, define a lot how we how we look at our environment how we experience our environment how we go about our our day to day business um, It seems to me a much more not just intellectual, but also much more sort of um, philosophical exercise than the concrete task of please design a house. How do you how do you approach something like that when somebody comes to you with sort of master planning exercise?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there, there's there's a kind of double side to that. On the one hand, um, all design problems are are sort of interrelated in my mind, um, and and so the scale is really just a matter of uh, shifting shifting the needle, let's say, according to um, you know extremely large scale to extremely small scale. But on the other hand, um, I have a deep belief and 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 a, and a very strong uh, sort of uh, thinking about cities and spatiality that um, they speak to the to the dignity of the human condition. Um, if you know, there, there's an old axiom coming out of a Vitruvius in the 16th century who wrote in a book, uh, in a very important book for architects, of, uh, that uh, you know, beautiful beautiful cities make for beautiful people. Um, and the reverse is true, of course, and 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 what that means is that we are affected profoundly by the things around us, uh, be that objects or be it the spaces we you know work and play in and live in, um, and 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 the places where we we sort of uh, inhabit both mentally and physically. So there's an incredible correlation there between um, things that are well designed. Um, thought about deeply uh you know um engineered and 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 artistically created uh, at at a very high level uh that have a profound impact on our psyches on our um on our way of being um and so you know when when I approach a city plan or a city design I, I think first of all in the modality of what is good design uh what is uh what is intelligent design what is what is um you know considered uh sort of you know proper on the other hand i'll switch gears and say well what is really the metaphysical side of the equation what makes for something to be uh, profoundly important to to be loved and to be uh sort of adored you could even use those words in in design of course and and you can use it in space and in city design so um yeah it's a journey i love taking and i think what i like about drawing and designing and thinking about large scale projects like cities or, or large plans or master plans, um, alongside of course, all the other things we do, um, is the ability to sort of, uh, sort of oscillate back and forth between those two very different, uh, but at the same time interrelated, um, sort of philosophical positions on, on design. Um, so it, it's just, yeah. it, it, it's just a very interesting journey and you really find yourself also intellectually uh in in a fantastic sort of um bouncing back and forth between you know uh, to, to your point you know a corner that's working remarkably well versus a a circulation system in a city versus a, a, how how you bring health and well-being to people uh how you create aesthetic joy um how you create uh sort of uh places for people to um live their lives which which is a very very profound design problem
1: yeah no it's true and it's something that um Many of us don't really think about, I think, uh, when we just look at uh, design urban environments and the places we, we live and work, we, we often underappreciate that. And I think it struck me very much when one of my first um, units at university um, in, in interior design was actually environmental psychology. And in the beginning, you think, "What environmental psychology?" Well, that's gonna. But then you realise that actually, this entire thing of where we feel safe and well and not stressed, what's happening to our sort of fight and flight uh, instincts when we move around spaces, when we sit down somewhere, why we feel comfortable and nestled and secure in one place and not in another, what's good atmosphere and all of that, it has a huge impact on how we feel. And I think once you study that a bit, you realise that in, in in environments all around us. How massive that actually is, and and I often think that there are so many badly designed spaces that we use all of the times, from you know courtrooms to hospitals to you know, airports, train stations, you know, and they are designed or not designed in a way <laughs> that they cause an awful lot of stress. And I think you can see it immediately in people's behavior and aggression levels. You know, we all know that when you you know in a very stressful multi-suitcase, train-to-check-in situation, you know, with four kids in tow, everyone's been there. And your aggression level and your behavior immediately changes because you are going and transiting through a very stressful environment. And I think you have fantastic potential as an architect to find intelligent solutions to that. And it's something that, in in, in two little examples, that uh, is often approached completely the wrong way around. And, And I know that from, you know, when I used to live in the UK there, and he had these like terrible doctor surgeries that totally overcrowded and same in the tube system. And then the response is always that more and more posters and warning notices go up in these spaces saying, do not <laughs> attack staff, zero tolerance. If you have a headbutt, the receptionists will lock you up. But they're not looking at the actual problem. They're just fighting the symptoms of the space. And and, and in, in the same way, I remember uh, the, the uh, security system at Geneva Airport for years and years and years. Had a system of trays that was completely different from anywhere else in the world, where basically you grabbed the tray right at the beginning of a very long neandering queue. And they depended on you basically taking that tray, putting your stuff in, and keep pushing that tray forward, which nobody understood and always ended up in endless delays. And they first responded to that for years by just putting bigger and bigger posters up saying "Move your bloody tray forward," <laughs> until one day somebody realized that the system didn't make sense. They redesigned it to a normal airport system, and since then, hey ho, it works. You know, so you know, design has a massive impact on. Well, we're on, on seeing the it.
0: Atmosphere. We're seeing it everywhere. I mean, we're seeing it now uh, in, in in urban space. We're things where you have um, benches, be they in airports or in the public realm, where there's big Xs or stickers where people shouldn't sit too close together by virtue of the pandemic. Um, yeah. So you see all of this kind of misguided adjustments and tweaking of bad design uh, to, to to try and remedy the situation as opposed to getting to the root of the problem, um, which, which, which has to do with what we just discussed. You know, it's interesting because I was just thinking as you were saying that, you um, you know, I had a, I had a I had a discussion with a very close friend of mine, who's a pretty high end uh, scientist and one of the well, actually one of the probably the most brilliant people I know uh, in in the, in the realm of science and invention. Um, but it occurred to me in our conversation that I, I accused him, <laughs> I accused my friend of saying, "Well, you know, the problem with your world is you you forget what it is. To, you're not looking at it from the humanist." Point of view of humanist traditions, humanist history, and so on. And he said to me, "What do you mean by that?" I said, "Well, you know, we live in a world which is quote unquote engineered. We we rely on science for everything. We rely on science to get us from one place to the other. That our cars work, our bridges work, our our roads work. Uh, you know, a, a technology is is a giant driver in our world. Uh, look at us now on this on this uh, in, you know talking to each other in this podcast. It's it's all about technology, but we forget." because we're overwhelmed and seduced by technology, that there's a flip side to all of that, which is the human, the human condition. Um, and if you start to really think about that, uh, it's, it's, you know, we're not living in a world where everything is driven by that, or else we'd be living in a very strange world, um, you know? <laughs> but at the same time, it really needs to be in play to offset the predominantly technological world we live in. An interesting example in architecture is the rise of behavioral science in the 70s. Um, where it became a driver for architects as a kind of, you know, as a kind of crutch uh, to design better spaces because science was telling us uh, in that period of telling my predecessors in that period that a certain green, for example, is a soothing color in a hospital. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hospitals I mean, should NATO be painted.
1: army barracks, yes. <laughs>
0: exactly. And and that that, you know, was kind of almost became a sort of an easy solution to a lot of problems was Okay, well, science has the answer then. You know, let's do everything green. And, and you know, you know today as as I know, and um, and 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 there's a big, big discussion in healthcare and healthcare architecture about how wrong we got so much, uh, how many things we got wrong by virtue of listening to behavioral science uh, sort of vectors, mm. uh, as opposed to going back and looking at it from other points of view. And and just one of the antidotes, uh, or, or or let's say uh, to that, is nature. We've we've discovered you know, with science and without science, that the importance of nature in, in, in terms of our lives, in terms of being human beings, is of paramount importance to our well-being. You know, even just standing in a forest, they've they've proven makes you f- feel elevated uh, emotionally. Um, so how do we bring... One of our big questions these days in, in architecture is, um, how do we bring some of those um, otherwise ineffable and difficult to pinpoint uh, aspects of, of, of sort of... Um, that appeal to the human condition at a very deep level into, into the way we design space and architecture. Um, and it's become an interesting problem. And it, and, it, then it, and then you find yourself back in the question of lighting, technological invention, uh, artificial intelligence, even machine learning. We're, we're touching on all these subjects, but not to solve problems, uh, but rather to um, inject into the otherwise uh, you know, scientific and technologically driven discipline uh, the sense of the human and what it means to be human
1: yeah and i i i totally agree though also I mean we've seen so many examples that lighting is another one of those factors that makes a massive difference that is yeah. constantly under considered and under appreciated um I, I remember very clearly, I think it was like some some point in the late nineteen eighties early nineteen nineties uh, the german rail system in, in you know introduced the first um i c e high speed uh, trains in those days the wide body trains that were you know, quite low floor design. It was really quite something different, obviously looked like a bullet train sort of following the the, the example of the Shinkansen in Japan. But what they did from the beginning is they designed a space that I think was supposed to be luxurious. That's probably how they got there in the beginning, but they actually worked with very much uh, sort of indirect warm and quite dim lighting. Mm-hmm. Versus what you normally have in in, in in trains for sort of public safety and security kind of aspects, which is always like, okay, let's let's stick a fluorescent tube in, make it three thousand mm-hmm. lux cold uh, abattoir lighting <laughs> throughout, and it's just not relaxing people, right? Whereas if yeah. you if you have a, a comfortable chair and you have low angle lighting and you know it's not too noisy in there and you've got your in-flight entertainment system, and you could see people they step onto these trains and they kind of sat down and went, ah, yeah. And, and, and everybody was kind of a little bit hushed and sort of gentle with each other. And you don't have this. And, and then you have the London commuter train you know, <laughs> crammed onto this like 3,000 lux, rattling, noisy, drafty kind of train experience. And everybody wants to like, literally punch each other in the face. And it's, <laughs> it's, it is amazing how, how much difference um, uh, that can make. Yeah. but. You know, tell, tell us a little bit, I mean, how, how did you come to, to set up uh, Asymptote in, in, in New York? I mean, talking about stressful urban environments, <laughs> you moved from Ontario to, <laughs> actually. to the place where every lorry driver shouts, <laughs> no, no, no.
0: <laughs> how, did, how,
1: how did that happen? <laughs>
0: um, well, actually, it, it, it was sort of an interesting road. Uh, I, I finished my undergrad uh, education in Canada, then I moved to Milan. Oh, sorry, then I did undergraduate school in, in Michigan here in the States. Uh, and then I moved to Milan and started my practice. Um, so I was two years in Milan uh, struggling with urban chaos. Yes, absolutely. Also struggling with a, with a situation there, which was driven by two factors. One was uh, it was impossible to get a phone line as, a, as a, I mean, relatively young. You know, I was very young, but I was trying to set up a practice and it was very difficult to work through the Italian bureaucracy. And the other was that I, I discovered that there's a kind of, a at that time especially, um, it was a kind of a a uh, closed system of of, of Milanese, um, you know, architects and designers who were using a lot of astranieri, as they call this, strangers from abroad, um, to design work. But when it came to setting up my own practice, uh, then all the sharks came out of the water. Um, and I was in this very interesting place in milieu, uh, you know, dealing with all of these people who were telling me that I'm not Milanese, I shouldn't be here, blah, blah, blah. So, I met a man named Pierre Rastigny. It was a fantastic art critic for Domus um, at the time. And uh, he looked at my portfolio and said, this work is fascinating, but you need to get out of here now. <laughs> 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 he says, you need to either move to Paris or New York because those are the only two places where you're going to be able to practice and do the kind of work you want to do. Um, and I took his advice and it turned out at the same time my partner, Lisanne Couture, was just finishing at Yale uh, and she wanted very much to live in New York also uh, and hated Milan actually at the time. Um, for, for many of those same reasons. And so we decided to, to come together here to New York and start, start a practice, start Asymptote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we chose actually just as a side note, we chose a name. <laughs> Asymptote. <not too> <laughs> well, we chose a, it. was an interesting story because I, I was looking desperately for some kind of a name for a practice in a studio that would, that would be, you know, that would indicate what we're trying to do both in the art world, the technology world, and the, and the architecture world at the same time. And... Um, I read a, I read this fantastic um, Baudelaire uh, novel uh, who had said that the women of Paris are like asymptotes. And I thought, okay, that's very interesting. Is that sexist or is that <laughs> poetic? And as I looked more into it, I realized that um, there's, there was a kind of profound philosophical um, Uh, tradition around the notion of the asymptote, which is for any of the audience listening is is basically who don't know, it's probably everyone does know, but um, is a mathematical term of the convergence of two lines, a hyperbolic curve and a straight line at infinity, which sounds like a non-sequitur because the two converging lines never actually meet. They continue to get closer and closer together, but they don't actually touch. And I thought that was a very beautiful and profound word That is both mathematical and scientific, and extremely important in math um, and in physics. But at the same time, very, very philosophical and, 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 you know, yeah, profound. And so, we chose the name. And then, of course, I remember thinking, well, wait a minute. I just read a story about a man named uh, Mr. Eastman, who had got his guys together in in uh, Rochester, New York, uh, many years ago, and got a group of marketing people together. Said, I need a name for a company. That means nothing, uh, but can be pronounced in every language. And they said, "Well, what about Kodak?" Mm. And, yeah. and that and that became the brand. And I thought, "Well, okay. Well, this is typical of my radical thinking in that period." I said, "I want to meet a word that nobody can pronounce in any language and means everything." Yeah, uh, <laughs>
1: Sorry, I was going to say. And from that day forward, you had fun spelling your email address over the phone oh, to I'm, people,
0: <laughs> and especially working in other countries all over the world. I mean, I, uh, the pronunciations I put up with on that on that word and the. Inability to pronounce it has been fantastic. But you know, it's stuck and it's still with us and it means a great deal to me. Um, And it means a great deal to me also because Lizanne and I are, uh, you know, a man and a woman working on a practice together uh, who, in fact, share every aspect of the practice. But at the same time, there's a kind of a, and I don't want to sound too too dramatic here, too poetic or romantic, but the idea of the asymptote being something that converges at infinity and never actually. Touches. It's a bit uh, is,
1: is, in a marriage, isn't it?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's a, no, it's the contrary. It's a, it's about, it's about infinite desire, and that, uh, yeah. and that is a very interesting uh, notion, both in terms of relationships, of course, for all of us uh, to have that constantly being there, but also in the work. I mean, for me, the idea, and you asked at the beginning about all the different work that we do, from design to cities to objects to art. Um, I, I am. Very much always in the asymptotic trajectory uh, of working towards these ends, but the idea of actually anything closing is something I dread, uh, mm. and so that's that's where the the, uh, the term is is kind of profound.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it talks a little bit about being on, on a kind of eternal journey, in a sense. And by the way, we made it almost to 20 minutes without going totally deep and meaningful. <laughs> I mean, <here> we are. <laughs>
0: Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Past the red wine. <laughs> no, but it's true because, you know, and, and that's something that I always identify with with IWC quite a bit. It's it's about this journey that, you know, where, I mean, we have this uh tagline uh, of course the journey is your destination but there's a lot of truth in that because you know this idea of finishing something for good is to me is a very daunting one you know because that moment I'm going to be terribly bored (laughs) when you've literally can sort of you know sit up and sit back and go I've done it here we are job done goodbye then that's quite a scary thought and I think as you say I think we we strive for this idea of perfection that we have in our mind somewhere. Um, whenever we look back at anything we do, we say, okay, maybe that was a seven or an eight. <laughs> and then we, we know we can do it better next time, want to do it better next well, time. Well, I but- mean,
0: the, the very joy in life, the very power and profundity of life is the constant search uh, and the constant, you know, and, and always having desire. Uh, and and that's, that's really what drives all of us, uh, you know, to, to be... Um, to, you know, no matter what, our, whatever, cho- whatever we do in life or however we live our lives, but I think it's this idea of constantly in a search. Uh, some people take it to a very dramatic level, I mean, explorers and others, and others of us, uh, you know, find it in, in, in creative work. Uh, some find it in business. I mean, but it, it's for all of us extremely important. And closing it down is is something I think we all, and I hate to use the word, but I will say it, existentially dread. <laughs> Yeah. So maybe that's, that's really key and it's, it's, and it, and it makes for, it makes uh, for, for um, a kind of wonderful journey. That's what life is. Um, Absolutely.
1: And one of those, I mean, the project that where sort of I first came across your work sort of very physically, literally indirectly is of course your, your, your Hotel in in Yaz Marina in Abu Dhabi, because that was uh, literally the place where. Once us starting with Formula One, me attending the first Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, but probably back in 2017, I'd think, and I was immediately struck by the presence. And, and I think I said this to you many times, but it's not just the the, the sculptural form and the presence of that that building uh, on Yas Island, but it's also the 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 degree to which this creates a sense of place in this otherwise sort of newly developed bit of Abu Dhabi. And Abu Dhabi, obviously, for, you know most of you will know, but it sits across many different islands, so it's it's kind of difficult at times to figure out you know what center and point of convergence means in a place like that that is sort of interconnected by thousands of roads and you know a bit of residential and office bits and so on but this entire YAS development is really beautifully beautifully anchored by that uh, YAS hotel so so talk to us a little bit about what mo- what sort of went into creating that particular execution that project.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was in a way, it was kind of a, a labor of love when it when it started because I was so happy to um, to well, okay, let me, let me backtrack. We we got a call one day. We were doing a tower called the Strata Tower on, in Abu Dhabi, and we got a, We got a call um, and said, you know, um, I forget which shake it is, but one of the sheikhs had looked at the proposals for the Yas uh, for the Yas circuit um, and was very unhappy with the with the uh, hotel design or whatever because he wanted it to be a kind of a uh, you know, a, a sort of an important global presence as a mm. building. And, and the Formula One landmark. coming to Abu Dhabi, yeah, landmark. And, and the Formula One coming to Abu Dhabi was very, very important to, to, to the Emirati and to, uh, to, to, to these people. So, could we have something more interesting? And I, the story goes as I got the call, it was sort of so he walked in the room, he said, I don't want this project, find me an architect now, you have five days, and left the room. Um, at which point we get this frantic call, and they said to us, "You know, we're going to we're going to run a competition. We've picked five of you around the world. Uh, you have five days to to produce an idea for you know that that could that could be um, you know important and it could work." So we immediately sat down and said, "Okay, well, you know, the amazing thing about this project at, at that time was the fact that we had a tabula rasa to work with. I mean, it was essentially Yaz at that point. Yaz Island was a desert, uh, and and land reclamation uh, in the water." Um, We had a um, Formula One circuit that was already designed, of course, and and beginning to be implemented. And we said, okay, so what do we do? Number one, we said, you know, we should really dredge and create a marina um, so we should somehow fuse, um, you know, Yacht culture, and marina culture, with racing culture. So we we talked, to, we designed that, and then the uh, the second thing was the experimentation, and this is where I was saying earlier about kind of jumping from science to art. Uh, we said, okay, the first move we made, the first sketches we made, we poured a kind of virtual liquid mercury. I know this sounds very strange, but we took a, a program that we were working with at the time, a software program, and developed a a liquid mercury viscosity, let's say, and and texture. Um, and then poured it over the land and the, and the marina that we were bridging the track um, and produced this kind of aerodynamic um, form, this kind of bulbous form uh, that we developed further and further and further. And so this should be the kind of, uh, the kind of symbol and the kind of covering for the hotel. Um, and it should bridge over the Formula One track because we wanted to have the cars race literally through the hotel. Um, and, and see where we go with that. And we we pulled that to off in a few days in the office. It was sort of 24 hour, you know, five days uh, work. Um, and then sent the drawings over and kind of, you know, sh- just, sh- you know, uh, ducked and took cover <laughs> to see what would happen. And we got a call three days later and said that, effectively, uh, they looked in, the, the sheikh walked in the room, looked around, pointed at our scheme and said, build that, and you have exactly 24 months Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when the whole thing, uh, started to go crazy because no one had ever built a building of that size, um, and that stature in, in such a short period of time. And so we, uh, pulled the, pulled out all the stops technologically we could in terms of, um, you know, what's at the time was very early in BIM, BIM modeling, which is a business, uh, you know, uh, building, uh, uh, tools, building intelligence management tools. Um, and, um, yeah, it started to work. And so as we were walk- as we were working through this kind of, uh, let's say, aerodynamically generated architectural object, we said, but it really has to have, as you just pointed out, uh, a sense of place and a sense of purpose in that region. And so then we started looking at, um, you know, we looked at the math in Islamic architecture and the kind of tessellation of surfaces and, and algorithms. We looked at um, billowing structures that you would find in, in Bedouin tents. Uh, we looked at uh, the social spaces of souks and other things. And we tried to say, could we inject the project with these sort of historic references, but without any sort of cliches, or without any sort of, uh, let's say, what we, what we coined as Disneyland effect. We wanted to produce something that was completely new and and powerful and abstract and not tied necessarily to any one reading and and that's how it and that's how it went and uh, that was being done at the same time as we were frantically trying to figure out how to um you know make that whole grid shell uh with our very very um you know fantastic uh, engineers in, in uh, Stuttgart Schleibergmann. I,
1: was going to say it. I was I didn't know that but I was going to say to you <laughs> and then that was probably the moment when you phoned a German glass and metal engineer and said got oh, a kind of problem
0: <laughs> well Schle- Schleibergmann is a is a terrific firm and terrific engineers we've worked with them quite a bit and and we we got on the call with them and said look we have this we have this idea we need to build this shell, you know, over, we need to touch the ground in as few places as possible. I mean, we made as impossible as we could as an engineering feat as we, (laughs) as we possibly could for them and off to work, they went and with us. um, And, and then there was a kind of a fantastic, I'll never forget. It was a fantastic sort of Apollo 13 moment where we all gathered in Vienna uh, with the construction methodology, with the, with the, with the sort of uh, material engineers, with the modelers. And we, together brainstorm the, the way that this whole building could, could sort of sit on seven points, actually, um, and, and span over 500 meters. Um, contains 5,682 uh, you know, pieces of, of glass of different dimensions ranging from a half a meter to four meters. Um, you
1: sound like you had to clean them and, before the opening.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then the cleaning, the cleaning is a fantastic story because we had a meeting and I was told, um, you know, uh, to ask to to bring scenarios, we brought a bunch of, of, of specialists in, and we had an idea to robotically clean all the glass, have robots on every glass, uh, and then uh, someone in the meeting just looked at me and said, "No, no, no, we're going to use repelling," hmm. <laughs> and that's how it, and that's it's how it done. works. There are people avoidance rather than <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but so, what is your view on? Because I often wondered that whether as an architectural designer being given too much time is generally not a good idea for creativity. <laughs> what, 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 what do you f- I mean, is, is that something you've observed? Because I often think like, if you're going to have a good idea about something, it's probably going to come quite quickly in some shape or form. And if it doesn't come, it's probably not going to come six weeks down the line either. Is, is time pressure so, a good thing or how do you two, think about that?
0: Well, there are two things. In, in graduate school, my professor at the time told me very profoundly that you can have a great idea in 10 minutes and a lifetime to execute it, mm. uh, which I've always uh, subscribed to and I believe. And the second thing is Lisanne, my partner, always says to me that nothing ever happens with me until I'm in a pressure cooker. Yeah. Um and and getting in that pressure cooker and yeah, getting I'm to the that same po- definitely. Yeah, and getting to that point where there are no more you know, there's, there's no more doorways no out more of this excuses. thing. No more excuses.
1: No okay. more. 11 no, a.m. Go.
0: No more bike races to watch. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll come on then, to that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, yeah, then then it's really and and what's interesting about that. And I I developed this while I was in grad school as as a, as a kind of set of beliefs. There's a there was a fantastic um, uh, text that I had re- re- read about this idea of um, of informed intuition. Um, and there's a whole sort of you know there's a whole set of sort of ideas around that 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 you basically have to find a way to uh inform the psyche inform your mentality inform your 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 sensibilities with as much information as you possibly can but there's a there's a moment of release when it comes to designing when it comes to creating which is then turning off all the knowledge in some ways and and working in the in the intuitive but the idea is how how informed is that intuition? Is that intuition yeah. just, you know, just outright intuition and therefore you're, you're just floundering around or is it coming with a great deal of knowledge? And, and, that, and that's also why I think uh, as, as an architect, it takes us years and years to actually get to the point where we actually are performing correctly. Um, I've always said that almost everything I did uh, from, from the time I graduated until the last say 10 years uh, was kind of just dress rehearsal for the practice that I have now. Where we're sort of hitting our stride, um, you know, uh, because it takes so much um, of sort of filling up that cup, so to speak, or filling up that reservoir with, with with information to the point where you where your intuition is actually profound and 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 considered and 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 precise. Yeah, so getting in a situation of being under extreme pressure. Um, is kind of building up the 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 uh, the sort of the tension on that uh, on that intuition that's ready to be released. But the whole question is, and I think this is important for all creatives and and all all of us out there who who have to come up with solutions, um, is trusting at some moment, uh, learning to trust that uh, aspect and not sort of stopping yourself, you know, mid mid uh, mid work or or mid stream and saying, oh, but but I don't know where this is coming from. I think it's the opposite. I'm actually yeah. very very Excited when I don't know where something is coming from. Yeah. Um, no,
1: absolutely. And I mean, what I love about this building, and I mean, I'm sure many of our listeners will will know it well, it, it's a, a building that looks fast. It looks dynamic. It looks like it's in motion. It generates a motion that surely makes that well, together uh, with a turquoise um sort of... Uh, and he slip uh, lines around the racetrack. <laughs> well, I'll, t- I'll tell you a, fan, a
0: fantastic story on that. Mm-hmm. Is that. We worked with a fantastic guy, John Bullough, who was, who was really the client and the kind of, the, the, who, who just stood behind us 100% on that project. <clears throat> and I had to show John and, and, and some of the local, uh, sort of, he was the CEO of Aldar at the time. I had to show him and a few other people um, how the project looked um, with the video signals. Because we it has five, you know, all, all those windows have also a, a 36 million color pixel projector on them. (laughs) So, we can send video streams from New York uh, or from anywhere to to the Mm building surface and it plays them. So, we decided to sit in the desert. We went out to the furthest grandstands at the track. And I said to John, okay, it was the night. It was now dark. I said, okay, John, watch this. And I called New York. I said, okay, put the video on. And the video we sent over was the building in a wind tunnel at at 280 kilometers an hour. Um, And we projected that onto the building. Uh, sat there in the desert and watched the building uh, racing through the desert, 280 K an hour. And, and that was a thrilling moment for yeah. that project. <laughs> uh, no,
1: uh, amazing. And I, but I, I relate to that time pressure on that because it was probably the most aerodynamic thing I've ever designed was actually our, our engineer, wind tunnel booth back in uh, 2013. And it was one of those situations as well. I think it was eight 30 in the morning and um, one of my dear bosses, uh, you know, put the gun to my head sort of proverbially and just said, okay, by 11.30, we need to have the design or else. <laughs> and then I just said, okay, I lock myself in, uh, I have a go and, and you know, that worked out. And then you say you have a lifetime to execute once you've got the basics in place. You can work on all the details, but sometimes you need that time pressure to actually come up with something that oh, is no. like not too overthought. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, no, Family. absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and
1: the other thing I, I noticed, um, which I find very um, particular about this project and I'm, I'm sure others of yours as well is, there's, there's there's a new generation of architectural renderings that I've really seen emerging mainly in the Middle East and in China which are usually in sort of uh, half lit um you know, dusky conditions where you see all the lights on and everything's fireworks and, sp- you know, sort of water fountains and, and these buildings look incredibly beautifully lit yeah. until you actually get there and it's usually yeah. like a dull, grey, hazy day and all you see is steel and green glass and it all looks terribly dull. And y- your building is one of those that actually looks like that in real life. Like when you're actually there and, and the race is on and you know, the sun goes down as it does in the Middle East quite early on, um, and suddenly this thing comes to life with the lighting and does actually look exactly like it did in the renderings, and it has got that presence to it. So it's not just sort of um, rendered to theme park level. <laughs> then no, that, uh, theme-
0: <clears throat> that makes me very happy here because, in fact, that's that's been the whole quest for us. I mean, I, I again, the reason that I, I work in the art world as well as the architecture world and the design world is not because I'm trying to do multiple careers. It's rather they, they're, they're all ways to research um, the thing that I'm the most interested in, which is you know creating interesting objects and spatiality. And so, um, the idea of, of sort of, you know, pr- serving or probing the phenomenological or the phenomenology of something is so important to me and to the work that what we do is we we've, we've have an, a pretty interesting track record that most, almost all the buildings we've built are better in reality than any rendering we produced. Um, and that's become kind of a kind of mantra for me in our practice. Uh, that the, the renderings, of course, are photorealistic and spectacular and seductive, but the phenomenology of something—the way something acts in real space, in real time—against the glint of the sky, against a particular, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, state of mind. Even I mean, there's so many other things that that drive the way we see physical space. To get that into a project demands uh, a kind of uh, a hard hardcore research and and development of of these other principles of design that are not necessarily quantitative it goes back to what I was thinking mm-hmm. before about being humanist um, so it's really it's really key and right now I'm working on a project in Budapest uh, this morning before we came on this I was looking at uh, with Mike with one of my designers I was looking at the way that we are going to um, light the building and and sort of work the building from day to night and through the transition of twilight and dusk and so on. Um, and we're sitting here looking at, you know, very strange conceptual videos on the screen of tests, of of hues and variations and, and sort of, um, uh, again, phenomenological kind of uh, things uh, that at the end, we have to figure out what the technical way of implementing that is. And there's no way to get that in a rendering. Mm. Uh, there's, at the end of the day, it has to be, the actual effect that will take place. We can do renderings that that kind of get close to it, um, but the reality of something, um, and and I think this is something also to just to to speak about, you know, what what IWC is, the reality of something uh, carries with it uh, all of that research, all of that history, all of that sort of uh, pedigree uh, and, and depth, that, that that comes out at the end in something that, that yeah. way, is way beyond what you see in a, in a kind of, um, you know, in, in, no matter how high-end the rendering is. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, you just stole my beautiful segue. I was looking forward to that. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, but, no, but it, it is, you know, and I, I often spoke about that also because of my, my background in, in design, that really in the watch world, um, it is exactly as you described. There is no amount of rendering and visualization that can give you a realistic impression of a product on the wrist like a mechanical watch. It doesn't work. You know, you can, you can look at proportions and angles and materials and colors and stuff, but in our world, every single little light reflection, the feeling on your skin, it makes so much difference. The feel of a material, the feel of the leather, of the metal, of the titanium on your wrist, it makes a massive difference to how you perceive the product that yes, we make, photography and rendering to plan and we, we do it obviously to to get people interested and excited about watch designs but you know probably most people who bought a mechanical watch can can testify to that 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 the moment you put this thing on your wrist it is something completely different and also there's a huge personal component because either you as a human being connect with that product and you go oh yeah i feel at one with it and this i feel right with it and it works on my wrist or you think i absolutely love this watch but i can't wear it you know, and that there's, there's many watches like that for me where I absolutely love the design, hate them on my wrist. <laughs> and yeah, I think yeah, that's, yeah. that's, no, uh, that's maybe, um, you know, where, where, where those two approaches are very, very similar in that sense. No, there's,
0: there's a really strong correlation between um, what I was discussing earlier about sort of uh, the antidote to technological, um, let's say, obsession. Uh, also, uh, on the flip side, the, the, the humanist um, condition. And, 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 and it's really interesting, the correlation between... Let's say a, a watch or an object that predominantly exists as a seductive rendering, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, um, but has no physical or metaphysical presence in reality when you actually deal with it because it, does, it loses its depth. In other words, you're wearing a rendering right mm. on some on some digital watches yes, like the you know. ar try on <laughs> <laughs> exactly and I know, and you have the same problem in, in architecture I, mm. you know your point earlier is is extremely important and profound uh, in for our discipline and many many architects should, should hear what you said uh, about the fact that um, you know at the end of the day uh, bl- blitzy renderings that produce relatively banal outcomes um, we are living in a, in a kind of rendered world, not yeah. in a, not in a viscous, uh, world of depth and profundity. And the same thing goes with the object. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking earlier before we did this podcast about my, my, you know, uh, interest in, in IWC and the way that you and I got involved and why I'm, why I'm so passionate about IWC and working with you is that, um, I realized, and I learned this from you. I have to be honest. I learned this from you and from our, our relationship and our, our friendship, um, that, uh, in a in a world where um you uh, spend all of your time trusting the here and now i.e. the digital i.e. the um the sort of the Instagramable, the the sort of here and now the sound bite and so on and mm-hmm. so forth there's a kind of a uh, that that the weight of the watch and i have to say this to me is is kind of profound the weight of the watch is the weight of history and storytelling and engineering and um and it resonates, uh, you feel like you're actually looking into a much deeper, and I, I, I sort of be architectural about it, but it's like looking into a very sort of beautiful um, tunnel or into a beautiful spatiality, as opposed to just looking at the surface uh, when, I, when I look at it. So, no matter how much data is on my wrist, I mean, if I'm wearing a sports watch and I've got like my heartbeat and, and my oxygen levels and all that stuff, I'm just looking at the surface. I, I, there's no depth there. But when you're wearing something like a like a like a timepiece that carries with it um you know all of this fantastic history and in our, in the IWC case back to here, Brooklyn <laughs> and Boston, um and, and, and all the way to Schaffhausen, um you're you are you are looking beyond the time on the screen and beyond the data uh into the very sort of depth of of and and the resonance of 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 meaning and history and time. And that's really interesting. And and to me, that's also about architecture, because if I'm in a in a building um, or in, or producing a new building, my real question in my in my work is is what is this building like? And I know it sounds weird, but you know what is this building like many decades from now? Uh, and architecture is a permanent art. We we don't design for the uh, for the next five years or ten years or according to a fashion sort of trend. We we design for the for the very long haul. Uh, and, and, you know, and I've always remembered when I did the uh, my first project with Lisanne, we did Steel Cloud in Los Angeles that we won in a competition in, back in, in when we started. Um, and I remember it being asked in a lecture in Mexico, um, you know, will I build this building? Because it was extremely radical and, prof- and very, very um, difficult to see built in the time it was designed. And I said, no, you know, maybe my granddaughter will build it. Um, and there was a big like, uh, a big sort of sigh in the audience. It was this kind of, you know, you could see the audience was like, what? What's he talking about? But the tradition of architects passing down their work through generations to build important, you know, churches or, or, or buildings is, it is and has been quite normal. Um, and, yeah. and we tend to forget that. So, yeah, I think there's something really interesting about uh, wearing uh, and, and being part of a long powerful and beautiful story hmm. that's both technological and artistic at the same time. Which, As we which say in the
1: watch world, not just a pretty face. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it, indeed. Because, no, it's, it's absolutely true because at the end of the day, uh, the creation of the mechanism, it, it, it is... Um, A document of cultural heritage, of, of things that have been passed down for generations. And it is that intersection between design, technology and craftsmanship. And again, that sounds like very obvious, but it's true that with all of the technological capability we have today, we sometimes have to get back to this kind of very archaic way of working that I always imagine you I mean you just, just described the architect's probably hands on building churches, cathedrals, mosques, and the likes uh, centuries ago. He would literally sit there on the scaffolding and chisel away at something until the form was right you know and there was a, a, a crafted um, iterative um, process involved in the whole thing you didn't just you know create something on the computer and hit the 3D print button and and, and off it went. It was a process of actually feeling then from, from concept in your head to the finished form. I think we all know that from Lego maybe in a sense. <laughs> you know, you start off with a rough idea, but then the process of doing it actually turns it into something that goes much further than probably what you wanted to do in the beginning. Uh, and that's exactly sometimes what I find uh, is is so hampered nowadays when we work with a lot of library objects in rendering and your, kind of your design becomes... You know, dom- you know, residential design becomes almost um, dominated by whatever is available on the database, <laughs> whatever you can download yeah. for free. You right. know, it's, like, it's a huge limiting factor. And yeah. we, we come to these points all of the time, not only in what I said with in terms of prototyping and computer-aided design on watches, but also the fact that there are certain technical challenges which are very clear from uh, a data science point of view. Mm-hmm. But then the answer to that is not technological at all. You know, we had it the other day. We were discussing like a, a tolerance issue on a hairspring. And, you know, there was some ultra-precise laser measurement at a supplier that, like, you know, threw up the entire question. And then I said to my colleague, uh, Andy, who's the CEO, he said, so how do we fix this? How do you go about it? And, and what can we do? And I expected there'd be like some systems answer. And he said, oh, we need basically 15 watchmakers. <laughs> like, because there comes a point where, yeah, you've used technology for the analysis. You know where you're going. But the actual process of getting there is actually one that needs the interaction of a craftsperson and the physical object and nothing else will do it. And that's, that's yeah. uh, I think, what, what you described, which is so true for mechanical watches, that you know, it, it's not a fashion object. It's not something we just chuck out for the value of, of its look and its Instagram ability. Actually, the, the, the learnings that go into constructing a piece like that properly they carry the 153 years and industry wise even longer, you know, many hundreds of years of watchmaking tradition on finding out what works and what doesn't work and what isn't, what isn't beautiful. And maybe another, another example f- for our listeners that maybe not many people are aware of is, is dial finishing. You know, when you look at one of our blue or green dials, um, it looks easy. <laughs> it's not, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we always see like not, no matter how sophisticated the coloring techniques are nowadays, there is still ultimately the person who's got the best craftspeople in the manual process will produce the best dial. There's there's no two ways about it. You can have computer-controlled ALD coating with hyper-precision. You can spec every minute color, but the depth of the dial and what makes the watch come to life on your wrist is actually because you have somebody who has 25, 30 years of experience of creating a handcrafted dial that makes a difference. And that's, that's I think, where that's really a, a fascinating um, part of that journey, what that gives me the confidence that us humans are not completely redundant yet. Which is no, 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 no.
0: no it's amazing. I mean, we have a, you know, I teach in Vienna, uh, and I have a, a lab, a research lab there that we're doing uh, you know, in architecture and city planning and technology and so on. And we had a, I had a student last year who um, did a very, very deep dive into AI and machine learning um, to the point where he was training. A computer that he became very close to, <laughs> which was very weird. Uh, uh, that that could actually uh, produce uh, what he was doing was feeding the computer every important iconic piece of modern architecture uh, that he could possibly get into the system. Uh, so that through a thing called GAN, uh, through GAN programming and GAN software, that the computer would spit out the the perfect modernist, uh, let's say, building. Right. This was the quest to see if the AI. Um, could drive something, and the lesson learned in that was that there's no better AI than the human mind, number one mm. uh, and we have the ability to make mistakes, um, and that became a really profound uh, sort of um, let 's say epiphany mm. that what really makes the difference between machine learned um, algorithms and, and and the manufacture of something digitally and the production of something in terms of perfection is the fact that the human being brings to it the potential for error and error, at the end of the day, if harnessed correctly, it's evolution. yes, exactly, and, and can make something uh, absolutely impeccable and beautiful and unique. Um, and so it's this idea of a sort of, um, it's, this, it's this fantastic oscillation between perfection and human error that has actually given us almost everything yeah. historically that we look to and say, wow, that is remarkably beautiful, uh, that is remarkably elegant, uh, these words that we throw around, beauty, elegance, perfection, um, have a lot residing in this. In, and, and back to that discussion earlier about informed intuition, uh, you know, years and years of experience. And this is something that's, you know, I was talking to my son about this, he's uh, 24, um, that it, at, for, for that age group and for, for people kind of working in that, in that moment, and I was like that too, I would imagine. Um, one doesn't necessarily understand what years and years of experience brings to the table if everything is quantifiable and and driven by uh, the sort of you know the, the computer and as you said pressing buttons producing 3D models and so on. Um, no, it's it's in fact the opposite. It's the fact yeah, that all these, these layers of, of 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 making these mistakes, these mistakes that you jump onto, then that mistake becomes the next thing you're doing, and then on and on and on uh, is evolution, as you said, uh, and it's it's really amazing.
1: And some of the best things in life have been invented by accident. Oh, see the Swiss national dish of raclette, melted cheese, leaving the <laughs> cheese too close to the fire, and
0: boom, there we go. <laughs> oh, no, <but> there's, <laughs> there's more truth to that. I almost no, You're absolutely right. All across the board, there are things that, that one wonders, how did we ever come up with this? Um, and yeah, it was a mistake. At some point in, in, in the history of the world, there was a little mistake made. Somebody rolled a no, boulder. But, d- yeah.
1: <laughs> and it's, it's 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 very true, and it's one of those things without sounding terribly old that we we have to really watch out for, not to lose in this age where everything is measurable, quantifiable. There's a set of data for for everything, and I'm often, you know, I I, I fundamentally believe and agree that we can learn a lot from data. No question, you know, yeah, there's absolutely. a lot of things we can learn. But I often I often try to remind people around me as well that, especially in in things that are intuitive and emotional, and, and you know, sort of acquiring a luxury object often is one of those as well. You know, your, your behavior, I think, maybe I'm completely wrong on this, but it's not following a completely logical and sequential pattern. Exactly. Because maybe we all know that there are things in life that we would love to have, we may even have the means to acquire them, we like the brand, we like the product, we like everything. We've bumped into a couple of different shops and sales assistants. We left our contact details. Uh, they may have yeah. sent you a CRM email, et cetera. But for one reason or another, y- you've not bought something or bought something else or did something else. And and you don't even, I, I don't often know myself, you know, rationally why that is. It's just, yeah. it's just what your intuition tells you to do at one point or not. And it's not what ad I've seen on Insta or anything like that. It's just sometimes... Things happen or they don't happen. And I don't think that this is like completely quantifiable and completely sort of, because it's emotion, it's impulsive, but. Right. We're already out of time. I was supposed to have asked you our standard questions that we ask all our guests. But actually, I think we've, we've discussed uh, questions that were equally, if not more interesting than uh, just asking you about questions of time in your life. I could spend hours more time with you, um, uh, you know, going down those, those little routes of discovery because it's always super enriching and very, very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Same for me. The same and for me, Chris. Thank I'm you. Still, I'm still holding out for this opportunity to literally go to space with each other. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which we <laughs> well, have to do. And I think I, we have a very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: No, I can't wait. I've, 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 been, I've got my spacesuit ready. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And the <laughs> cycling suit, by the way, it's on its way. <laughs> the one that I still owe you. And I know that you have great ambitious plans well, on, more importantly, I, on I, two wheels the, as well. Do some
0: cycling together. Okay.
1: Absolutely. Will do. Thank you so much, honey. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks to our listeners and uh, speak to you next time. Thank you very much. All the best.
0: Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode. This is the Partners in Time podcast. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode If you want to find out more, visit iwc.com. And you can, of course, follow us on Instagram. It's at iwcwatches. My Instagram is at chrisgrangerhair. Make sure you tune in. Speak to you soon.